Bibles. This morning we're going to be in Psalms, Psalm chapter 22. If you don't own a Bible or you forgot to bring yours this morning, there should be a white paperback Bible in front of you. Go ahead and grab that. This is a very long psalm, so you're going to want to follow along because my voice might get a little drowning. Psalm chapter 22. When you're there, say ready. All right. Fasten your seatbelts. Here we go. Psalm 22. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me from the words of my groaning? Oh, my God, I cry by day, but you do not answer. And by night, but I find no rest. Yet you are holy, enthroned on the praises of Israel. And you, our fathers, trusted. They trusted, and you delivered them. To you they cried and were rescued. In you they trusted and were not put to shame. But I am a worm and not a man, scorned by mankind and despised by the people. All who see me mock me. They make mouths at me. They wag their heads. He trusted in the Lord. Let him deliver him. Let him rescue him, for he delights in him. Yet you are he who took me from the womb. You made me trust you at my mother's breast. On you was I cast from my birth, and from my mother's womb, you have been my God. Be not far from me, for trouble is near, and there is none to help. Many bulls encompass me, strong bulls of Bashan surround me. They open wide their mouths at me, like a ravening and roaring lion. I am poured out like water, and all my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax. It is melted within my breast. My strength is dried up like a potsherd, and my tongue sticks to my jaws. You lay me in the dust of death, for dogs encompass me. A company of evildoers encircles me. They have pierced my hands and my feet. I can count all my bones. They stare and gloat over me. They divide my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. But you, O Lord, do not be far off. O you, my help, come quickly to my aid. Deliver my soul from the sword, my precious life from the power of the dog. Save me from the mouth of the lion. You have rescued me from the horns of the wild oxen. I will tell your name to my brothers. In the midst of the congregation, I will praise you. You who fear the Lord, praise him. All you offspring of Jacob, glorify him and stand in awe of him, all you offspring of Israel. For he is not despised or abhorred the affliction of the affected. Nope, the affliction of the afflicted. And he has not hidden his face from him, but has heard when he cried to him. From you comes my praise in the great congregation. My vows I will perform before those who fear him. The afflicted shall eat and be satisfied. Those who seek him shall praise the Lord. May your hearts live forever. All the ends of the earth shall remember and turn to the Lord. And all the families of the nations shall worship before you. For kingship belongs to the Lord, and he rules over the nations. All the prosperous of the earth eat and worship before him shall bow all who go down to the dust, even the one who could not keep himself alive. Posterity shall serve him. It shall be told of the Lord to the coming generation. 
They shall come and proclaim his righteousness to a people yet unborn, that he has done it. This is the word of the Lord. Well, good morning, everybody. There's a few of you out there. Come on, you've had your coffee, right? Good morning. It's good to see you guys. Welcome again to Westside. If you didn't catch it earlier, my name's Tyler. I'm the worship pastor here. Have the honor and the privilege to get to lead alongside all these beautiful people that you see up here and get to worship and lead alongside all of you as well. So before, uh, it's an honor to be here um, and an honor to, to serve with you guys and with these guys. So if you see them again, thank them for the service that they offer. Um, before we begin, I wanted to uh, just give you guys a heads up. Pastor Jason and his wife, Courtney, and their kids, Roman, Andy, and Piper, are all on a vacation for for, uh, an extended period of time. And so I wanted you guys to, to pray for them. I wanted you guys to, to encourage you to, to pray for your pastor because Jason pours a lot of his time and energy and blood, sweat, and tears. And yes, there is a massive cumulative effort going on back there to, to take care of your kids and in here for the Sunday morning and production and, and backstage and everything that goes on. Um, but our pastor pours his blood, his sweat, and his tears into this thing every single week. Um, he ties his heart very close to God's word as he's preparing to deliver it and to bring it to us. Um, and so uh, my, my direction and guidance for you guys to pray for him this week while he is out there making memories with his family, um, Augustine said that our hearts are restless until they find their rest in you. And so uh, I would just pray, and hopefully you would pray with me this week, that God would give Pastor Jason rest and grace this week, the rest that he needs in Jesus. Okay? Thank you. All right. So, love you, Jason. And uh, if we... We're moving forward in our, in our psalm series, right? We're learning how to express our emotions biblically. And we're taking a look at Psalm 22 today. And um, I'm actually really excited about this because in my study, I have uh, found what I dare to say is probably a psalm that stands out from all the rest. Um, if, you, if you were following along in your Bible and listening to the full reading of the text, you will hear some very weighty things going on, some very difficult things to read or even hear if someone was actually going through a time like that. And uh, we're going to take a look at that this morning. But before we begin, I wanted to talk to wanted to talk to you about a movie that my wife and I had recently watched. Um, it's called Inside Out. And by the way, if you don't like movies, you're going to have a rough time in this service. I got three movie illustrations for you today. So buckle up and get ready for that. Uh, the first one is Inside Out. And in, in the movie Inside Out, it's about this little girl who has all these emotions inside of her head. And the movie kind of takes place in her head. You seen the movie? Raise your hand. Yeah, and then if you've seen the movie, you know this character. Sadness is her name. Um, isn't that a great picture? Sadness is her name. And, and we're not talking about the emotion of sadness this morning, but we're talking about something that may lead to sadness or something that could come out of sadness. But um, sadness, there's a, quote in the line, there's a quote in the movie that she makes that I wanted to read to you guys. It says, crying helps me slow down and obsess over the weight of life's problems. How depressing is that? Sadness and crying helps me slow down and obsess over the weight of life's problems. Have you ever been there, just like wanted to cry because like you want to you wanna dwell in this and like kind of obsess over it? Um, sometimes it's healthy, sometimes it's not. Uh, but one of the things that we are going to be looking at this morning is uh, in Psalm 22, um, not just sadness, but maybe something that can lead to sadness. It's the idea of abandonment. So this morning, the title of our, of our sermon is going to be Addressing Abandonment. We're going to be looking at how to address abandonment. And in my study this week, I was trying to figure out where in David's life, because David is our author, where in David's life he would have written this psalm. Um, we always like to, to read the Bible in context and, and, and know that, uh, that when it was written matters and what's going on matters so that we can apply it properly to ourselves today. And it's kind of difficult. I could not actually find a time in David's life where this kind of 
syncs up with, with uh, an issue or a time in his life where, where he would have written this. Um, and so what we can do, we can kind of assume where it maybe would be, um, but I don't want to jump to conclusions because there's a greater point that comes from this that I'm excited about. Uh, but a little backstory of David. David was a shepherd boy in Bethlehem, and at the time, King Saul was, was king over all of Israel. He was anointed king by God through the prophet Samuel, and then Samuel uh, got word that, that Saul actually did some things wrong. He, he disobeyed the word of the Lord, right? And so the Lord wanted to anoint a new king. He sent Samuel to the town of Bethlehem, uh, and Samuel went into the house of Jesse and said, Yo, Jesse, show me all your kids. And then Jesse showed him all of his kids, and he's like, Nope, it's not this one. Do you got, do you got any more? And he said, Yeah, there's a shepherd out in the field. Bring the shepherd in. That's David. He is anointed king there in that moment. Saul gets word of this, and Saul feels like David is now a threat to his throne, right? Like David's a threat to my kingdom, so he tries to kill David. And so we have some psalms that are written in the book of the psalms by David in that season of life where he's being pursued by Saul, and he's fearful for his life. So it could be written in that time period, but it could also be in a time period where David is actually uh, throned and sitting on the throne as acting king in Israel, where he may be going into battle um, and maybe feeling like things aren't going so well and that he's about to die and his armies are about to die. Um, but I'm kind of glad I did not find exactly where in David's life this psalm was written. Because when I was reading through it, I mean, we see images and glimpses of Jesus. And, and some of you may recognize some of the language in the text from, from some of the Gospels when Jesus is actually on the cross. And Charles Spurgeon, I was going to, to his commentary on the Psalms called The Treasury of David. And he has this to say in light of this psalm maybe being a little bit more about Jesus than David. Listen to this. Spurgeon said... For plaintive expressions uprising from unutterable depths of woe. Isn't that beautiful? From unutterable depths of woe, we may say of this psalm that there is none like it. It is the photograph of our Lord's saddest hours, the record of his dying words, the lacrimatory of his last tears, the memorial of his expiring joys. David and his afflictions may be here in a very modified sense, but as the stars are concealed by the light of the sun, he who sees Jesus will probably neither see nor care to see David. Before us, we have a description both of the darkness and of the glory of the cross, the sufferings of Christ and the glory which shall follow. Oh, for grace to draw near and see this great sight, we should read reverently, putting off our shoes from off our feet as Moses did at the burning bush. For if there be holy ground anywhere in Scripture, it is in this psalm. Isn't that amazing? So, so now, what we're going to do this morning, uh, before I get to there, I want to talk about a certain uh, four kinds of abandonment you may have, have gone through. But what we're going to do with that Spurgeon quote, and now knowing that, that this psalm can actually be read through the context of looking at this psalm through, through the lens of the cross, we're going to see how Jesus handles abandonment. But before we do that, we're going to talk about the kinds of abandonment that maybe you have faced. Um, just to, I mean, abandonment can be a, a very... Um, uh, a very vague term. I, I know that it has an actual definition, but um, some of you may think abandonment is like when you leave your house for the afternoon and your dogs are sitting by the front door and they think you're never coming home and like they're abandoned forever. And then they come back and like, where were you? I thought you were never coming back. That's not the kind of abandonment we're talking about this morning. Um, and so I'm going to break down a few kinds of abandonment and then we will go from there. So the first kind of abandonment that you may have experienced or are experiencing is to be abandoned for another. To be abandoned for another. Some of you know what this feels like or you're going through it right now that you have a spouse um, who may be in the midst of leaving you right now um, or maybe you are in the midst of leaving your spouse, of abandoning your spouse, whether it's they've had a relationship with somebody in their office or, or uh, they're in a circle of friends that's encouraging them to just, to just drop everything and, and run off. Um, 
if you have experienced that kind of abandonment, I'm sorry. And, and if you are about to abandon somebody in that context, I would ask you, please don't. Please don't. Um, secondly, uh, you, so you may have been abandoned for another. Secondly, you may be uh, abandoned as a result of pride. And you say, what do you mean by that? As a result of pride. Well, uh, let, let, let's say you're in a confrontation with somebody or, or maybe you're experiencing this right now where you have your children and they say, you're, you're trying to raise them up in the way that they should go or, or love your wife as Christ loved the church. And, and they say, I don't understand why we have to adhere to this ancient book in our household. Or I don't like the rules that you're setting in line for me. They don't align with my standards. Don't you, can't you just approve or accept me for who I am? And instead of trying to submit or to be raised in a way that, that is uh, loving and kind and, and, and towards Jesus, they abandon you out of pride. Some of you haven't seen your kids for years because of this. Or that you have a spouse that has left you because you're, you're, you're too much stress on me. You're too, you're too difficult for me. You're so full of negativity and I just can't be around that. And then they leave. So maybe you're a product of that, or maybe you've experienced that kind of abandonment. Thirdly, maybe you've been abandoned for your faults. Abandoned for your faults. Um, let me be clear. The Bible is very clear. Raise your hand if you're a human. Some of you are not raising your hands. I'm just kidding. Um, if, if you're a human, we're all human in this room, right? And God's Word says that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. So no one in here, in here is exempt from, from having sinned in some way, shape, or form. So when I say that you are abandoned by your faults, this means that you, that maybe you have done something wrong that maybe you did it in your past, maybe you're in the midst of doing it right now, and, and whether it be your husband or your wife or your kids or a family member or a friend, rather than meeting you with grace or with mercy and trying to walk you along through, through, through a path of restoration and loving Jesus and living in light of the Bible, their response is, Chuck and Deuce says, I'm out of here. I can't handle you. You're too difficult. Or, and they hold this fault over your head for the entirety of your life. So if you're abandoned for that, I apologize. And lastly, um, abandoned in your innocence. Abandoned in your innocence. And just what I said earlier, we have all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. So being abandoned in your innocence doesn't necessarily mean that you are guilt, not guilty of any kind of a sin, but it does maybe mean that someone has abandoned you for no foreseeable reason that you can come up with in your mind. My dad left to get a pack of smokes when I was 12 years old and he never came home. Why did he leave? Why is he gone? Maybe that's you this morning. I woke up one morning and, and my wife's side of the bed was empty and all of her stuff is gone and I have no idea where she is. Everything seemed to be fine. I have no idea what I did. So maybe you've been abandoned in your innocence as well. So what are we doing with all of these? I'm trying to, trying to get our focus on what this idea of abandonment is like and what it's like to have, uh, to, to have this feeling or to be abandoned. But we have to take it further. And so since we are looking at this psalm through the lens of the cross, we are going to see specifically how, how did Jesus deal with the emotion of feeling abandoned? How did Jesus specifically deal with the emotion of feeling abandoned. And we're going to go through the text and break it down one by one and then see what it means for us. So firstly, firstly, he experiences it. He experiences it. You type A people are loving me. That's your first point. You get to put some ink on that paper. Isn't that amazing? All right, he experiences it. So uh, favorite movie of all time, second movie, boom, here you go. The Count of Monte Cristo. You seen it? Raise your hand. 
Some of you have seen it. All right, some of you have seen the glory of Jesus in that film, and it's amazing. It's my all-time favorite movie. I'm going to give you a little bit of a backstory of it. Uh, it's about this man named Edmund Dantes and his friend Fernan Mondego, and they are set in a time period of the 1800s where, uh, in the Paris, France area where Napoleon has just been exiled to the island of Elba. And Napoleon is on this island, and he's got all these guards that are constantly making sure that he's staying on the island and that nobody is coming on the island to conspire with him, to bring him information from Paris, or to take information back to Paris. And so Edmund and his friend Fernand, they're out uh, on their merchant ship, and their, and their captain contracts brain fever, which I just learned at the end of the first service was probably syphilis, which is super gross. Um, and so their, their captain has contracted brain fever. They're close to the island of Elba, and they know going there would be dangerous. And they know getting on that shore, they may be assumed to be agents of Napoleon, even though their intentions are harmless. But they put in anyways because their captain needs help. And so Edmund gets off of the boat that they take in from their, their skiff that leaves their ship way out in the surf. And he turns around, and it looks like Fernand is about to get back in the boat. And then Fernand comes back up to the shore, and he was just pushing the skiff back out into the ocean to go to the ship. And, and Edmund turns to Fernand and says, For a moment there, I thought you were abandoning me. For a moment there, I thought you were abandoning me. And then Fernand goes on to say, Don't be ridiculous, Edmond. Fernand Mondego does not abandon his friends in the face of stupid suicidal danger. Just don't expect me to do this sober. That kind of gives you an idea of how Fernand was in that movie or that book. So anyways, that is actually a big foreshadowing moment. It's the first line of the movie. For, for a moment there, I thought you were abandoning me. We find out that later on, uh, Edmund is actually really abandoned by his friend, by Fernand. They, uh, Fernand turns him into the, to the governments and tells him that he is an agent of Napoleon's, even though he's not. And then they lock him up in prison for a very long time. And then when he gets out, he starts to plot his revenge. But this morning's not about revenge, so don't take that the wrong way. Um, and then in the scene that I want to get to, Edmund is reunited with his fiancée for the first time after all these years of being betrayed and everything. And uh, she's actually ended up marrying his best friend, in his absence, when it, was, when it was only a month after he had been betrayed. Um, and she says, where have you been? And he says, the Chateau d'If for 13 years and everywhere else you can imagine. And she says, did you suffer? And he said, I've suffered much. I have a great deal on my mind now. And she says, why did you not come for me? And he says, why did you not wait? You married the very man that betrayed me, that abandoned me. Pretty heavy stuff, right? What are we, it's just a movie. Don't cry or anything. But, um, and so anyways, he, what are we seeing in that moment? We are seeing Edmund Dantes describe what he experienced. We are seeing him describe what that experience was like. 13 years in the Chateau d'If and everywhere else you can imagine. And we see David doing the same thing in this psalm. Look with me in verse 12. We're going to read verse 12 through 18. Open your Bibles. Look down at your Bibles. Psalm chapter 22. Have your eyes on Scripture. We're going to be beginning from verse 12. Look at the way that David is describing his experience. Verse 12. Many bulls encompass me. Strong bulls of Bashan surround me. They open wide their mouths at me like a ravening and roaring lion. I'm poured out like water, and all my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax. It is melted within my breast. My strength is dried up like a potsherd, and my tongue sticks to my jaws. You lay me in the dust of death. For dogs encompass me. A company of evildoers encircle me. They have pierced my hands and feet. Ah, I can count all my bones. They stare and gloat over me, and they divide my garments among themselves, and for my clothing they cast lots." What do we see David doing there? We see David using very poetic and very descriptive language about what he may be going through in that moment and what he is experiencing. And please remember, as we've said the last few weeks, we are looking at the Psalms from a literary standpoint. We are looking at them as poetry, something that is, that, that is describing truths from inside of, of, of the authors and then proclaiming them to the people around them. 
It's not a, it's not a, a literal text. Obviously, I mean, if you look with me in verse, uh, oh, where is it? Verse 14, my heart is like wax, it is melted within my breast. Had David penned that, he probably would have fallen over dead if he was being literal because I don't think he, you, or I could ever live with a liquid heart. And so, obviously, we're looking at them as, as literary, right? And what we see in that literary area is David being, look, looking at this psalm liter, uh, literarily, is David being very specific in his description. He's not just describing his experience, but he's being very, very specific. How many of you are type A and love specifics? There's a few of you. Most type A's won't raise their hand. How many of you are not type A? Look at that. A lot of participation. I love it. I'm going to make you raise your hand so much this morning. Um, so, so we see specifics. I think specifics are important. We need them, right? Like getting directions in this town is kind of difficult. Like when, when I moved here and I needed directions, uh, when Kayla and I moved here in 2013, I needed directions somewhere. Someone told me like, yeah, if you hit the Walmart, you've gone too far, I need to go back. And if you end up hitting the Larry Hillis, I'm like, I don't know these places. Give me street names. I need specifics. We need specifics to be able to, to, to know where we are being guided. But we also need to be specific in our prayers and specifics when we are describing our experiences to God. And I think it helps us. And this illustration, last movie reference, this illustration may help in terms of specifics. There's a movie that I watched recently called Dead Poet Society. If you've ever seen it, you are blessed by that movie as well. It's fantastic. Um, there is a scene in that movie where uh, Mr. Keating, the literature professor, looks at, uh, he has assigned everybody in the class to, to write a poem. And Mr. Young, young Mr. Anderson in the front row uh, did not write a poem because he was nervous and thinks he can't amount to anything. And so Mr. Keating says, you're not going to get out of this that easily, Mr. Anderson. Why don't you step right up here? Puts his arm around him, makes him look at a picture of Walt Whitman, and says, describe to me what you see, boy. And he almost makes him, makes him create a poem right there. And he goes on to say this, describe him to me. Uh, he's a madman. Oh, what kind of madman? He says, a crazy madman. Mr. Keating says, you can do better than that. And then Mr. Anderson says, a sweaty-toothed madman. A sweaty-toothed madman. He's like, ah, there's a poet in you after all, boy. And then he grabs him by the head and covers his eyes, and he says, and he says you can do better than that. You're, there's a poet in you after all. Close your eyes. Close them. What do you see? I close my eyes, and his image floats beside me. A sweaty-toothed madman with a stare that pounds my brain. Oh, that's excellent. Now give him action. Make him do something. His hands reach out and choke me. All the time, he's mumbling, mumbling truth. Truth like a blanket that always leaves your feet cold. You push it, stretch it, and it'll never be enough. You kick at it and beat it, and it'll never cover any of us. From the moment we enter crying to the moment we leave dying, it'll just cover your face as you wail and cry and scream. And Mr. Keating grabs Mr. Anderson, holds him close. He says, don't you forget this. What's happening in that moment? In that moment in that film, we're seeing a beautiful depiction of what we see in this text of, of, of Mr. Anderson being so descriptive. And so specific about what he's seeing and what he is experiencing. We see this also in Mark chapter 10. There's a, there's a blind beggar that's sitting by the wayside. Maybe some of you have seen or maybe some of you have heard this story. It's in the Bible, Mark chapter 10. Blind Bartimaeus sitting by the wayside and he's crying out and he says, Son of David, have mercy on me. And everyone's like, shut up. He doesn't want to have anything to do with you. You are abandoned and dumb on the side of the road. And then Jesus says, wait a minute, bring that man to me. And then Listen to what Jesus says. I love this. This is incredible. And Jesus stopped and said, call him. And they called the blind man saying to him, take heart, get up. He is calling you. And throwing off his cloak, he sprang up and came to Jesus. And Jesus said to him, read this aloud with me. What do you want me to do for you? That has to be like one of the funniest things I've ever read in the Bible. Bartimaeus knows he's blind. What do you want me to do for you? Are you kidding me? Jesus knows he's blind but he's asking him for specifics. What do you want me to do for you? 
You think Bartimaeus could have replied with, well, geez, what do you think? And someone grabs him and turns him, oh, sorry. Geez, what do you think? (laughs) He's blind. He knows he's blind. Jesus knows he's blind, but it's almost as if he's demanding some kind of interaction. He's demanding specifics from him. And I feel like in prayer, we, we have to be specific, um, especially with describing our experiences. And sometimes we're so general, man. Sometimes our prayers are so general. They're like, Lord, be with them. You've heard that one a hundred times from this pulpit. What about, you ever been to a church and, and people have asked anybody got a prayer request and you shoot up your hand and you're like, yes, sir, Mr. Smith in the back. And it'd say, I got an unspoken request. I can't tell you about it. And I understand privacy, but that's not the point that I'm getting at here. Or, Lord, you know their situation. Some of us use that to get out of, like, remembering people's names and having to say their names in prayers because we can't remember. You've done it. You've done it. It's okay to laugh. We're in church. Um, And so, anyways, we need to be specific, and, and sometimes our prayers are so general. And so, what does this mean for us? It means that when we are specific with describing our experiences, it shows our dependency on and our faith in God. When we are specific with describing our experiences, it shows our dependency on and our faith in God. What did blind Bartimaeus end up saying to Jesus? He didn't like, well, you should probably figure it out. I'm blind. No. Jesus says, what do you want me to do for you? And and Bartimaeus says, Rabbi, let me recover my sight. And then Jesus goes on to say, go on your way because your faith has made you well. You were specific with me. You described to me what was taking place and what you were experiencing me. And in that description and in that specific nature of telling me what's going on, you showed a dependency on me. You showed faith in me. So when we are specific in our prayers, it shows our dependency on and our faith in God. So what does that mean for us? What's our point for, for, for understanding that Jesus accepts it and that David has accepted their abandonment? Well, first we have to understand that David, like we said earlier, is a man. And all men have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. So David's just like you and me. And if David had experienced abandonment in whatever situation he was in, being a man, that is our tie-in and we must understand that I must accept that I will be abandoned. I must accept that I will be abandoned. Is that difficult for you to accept that you, that you will be abandoned or that maybe you even have been abandoned? Some of you have had a spouse leave you for somebody else or for no reason at all or out of pride or in your innocence or whatever and you've never even acknowledged it or accepted, let alone uh, give any attention to the pain that it's caused you. Some of you have kids who haven't been home in months or years and you have no idea where they are. But you've never sat down and addressed it. You've never sat down and experienced it and described to the Lord in detail with specifics about what is going on in your life, about what is going on with that person who has abandoned you. Maybe next time, instead of Lord be with them, we could be a little more specific and say, Heavenly Father, My friend's going through a divorce. I don't know what can be done here, but they've been struggling for for a very long time and and I just pray that you would give them peace and you would give them joy in this moment and, and turn them to your word and remind them of your promises and what you say about marriage and who you are and how you love them. Be specific. Maybe next time instead of, I have an unspoken request, it's Heavenly Father. My My spouse has cancer. We went to chemotherapy today. It was three hours long. It was our fifth session. She's still sick. She's still hurting. 
But God, give us grace to understand that you work all things together for good for those who are called according to your purpose. Remind us of your goodness in Jesus' name. When we are specific with describing our experiences to God, it helps us understand and accept and experience that abandonment in a healthy way. But that's, we can't stop there. We can't stop there. So first we see that David is experiencing it. And secondly, we see that David and subsequently Jesus, they express themselves. He expresses himself. He expresses himself. Look with me in God's word. Psalm, the same Psalm 22, verses 1 through 2. Listen to this expressive language that's going on in the text right now. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from me, from the words of my groaning? Oh my God, I cry but you, day by day, but you do not answer, and by night I find no rest. Verse 11, be not far from me, for trouble is near and there is none to help. Verse 19, but you, O Lord, do not be far off, come quickly. Verse 20, deliver my soul. Verse 21, save me. What are we seeing David do here? We're seeing David in the midst of, of this feeling of abandonment or being abandoned expressing himself. He hasn't just experienced it and described in detail what is going on in his life in prayer to the Lord, but he's also expressing how it makes him feel. He's expressing in detail what it's doing to him and and where he feels God is. It's almost as if he's saying, God, where are you? It doesn't seem like you're here right now. Don't be far off, be near. Be close to me. Help me in this situation. Do you remember... um, do you remember the, the full reading of the text this morning? Give me a nod if you do, yeah? Okay, and then do you remember the, the Charles Spurgeon quote we did and when it said that he who sees Jesus in this uh, may not even see or care to see David? We're gonna take a look at what that means and, and, and uh, we're gonna see the expression of David uh, in this psalm and how it's kind of played out in scripture in the gospel. So go with me to Matthew chapter 27, verse 35. Matthew 27, verse 35. It's not gonna be on the screen, so crack that, crack that Bible open and take a look at it and follow along with me in that scripture. We see something greater in this than just David expressing himself. And we see it here in Matthew 27, beginning in verse 35. And when they had crucified him, they divided his garments among them by casting lots. Then they sat down and kept watch over him there. And over his head they put a charge against him which read, This is Jesus, the King of the Jews. And then two robbers were crucified with him, one on the right and one on the left. And those who passed by derided him, wagging their heads, we saw that, and saying, you who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself. If you are the son of God, come down from the cross. And so also the chief priests and the scribes and the elders mocked him, saying, he saved others, he cannot save himself. He is the king of Israel, let him come down now from the cross and we will believe in him. And verse 43 comes directly from the psalm, says he trusts in God, let God deliver him now if he desires him. For he said, I am the son of God. And the robbers who were crucified with him also reviled him in the same way. Verse 45, now from the sixth hour there was darkness over all the land until the ninth hour. And about the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice saying, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, that is my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Verse 49, but the others said, let us wait to see whether Elijah will come to save him. In verse 50, and Jesus cried out again with a loud voice and yielded up his spirit. We see a lot in there, right? I mean, if, if, you, if you remember the reading of the text and some of the things that you saw in Psalm 22 when we were reading through it this morning, you will see a lot of things that actually were fulfilled or happened or maybe foreshadowed or prophecies fulfilled in Matthew 27. But we see something that something 
I saw in my research this week really shocked me because I'd never seen it before. If you look at the very first line of the psalm, it's, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? We see that Jesus said that in Psalm 27 towards the end of his life on the cross. And then if you look at the very last verse, have your eyes on your Bible, look at verse 31 of chapter 22, Psalm chapter 22. And they shall come and proclaim his righteousness to a people yet unborn that he has done it. In the original Hebrew, that he has done it can actually be translated to it is finished. Some scholars believe, and I'm, I'm a believer now, that Jesus may have quoted this psalm in its entirety in his last moments on the cross. Jesus, while hanging on the cross, quoted all of Psalm 22. We see the beauty of him experiencing this abandonment and this pain and then expressing himself in the midst of it. And so assuming that he did, assuming that Jesus did quote this entire psalm when he was on the cross, what do we see him doing here? We see him in the midst of, of, of his pain and his suffering and his agony and being betrayed by what we saw in Matthew and in Psalm 22 by, by all the Jews around him and all of his disciples. Who knows where they are? They've ran off. The, the thieves on the side of him have abandoned him and, and all of the Romans as well. Everybody has abandoned him. And in that state, he has experienced it, and now he is expressing himself, crying aloud, saying, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me and from the words of my groaning? He's expressing himself. And in that moment, we see that he has the freedom to do that. And so what does that mean for us? Knowing that now we, we look at Psalm 22 through the lens of the cross, knowing that, that Jesus very well may have quoted that entire text in his last breaths on the cross. What does that mean for us? That in those last moments that he was, that he was expressing himself. For us it means this, that regardless of my situation, I have the freedom to be honest with God. Regardless of my situation, I have the freedom to be honest with God. Did you know that it's okay to express yourself? I mean, it's 2017. I feel like we should know this by now, but um, it's 2017, Southeast Missouri. I feel like I have to say this. Ladies, it is okay to express yourselves. Men, it is okay to express yourself. As Jesus was on the cross, bearing the weight of the world's sin, all in the past and all in the future, yours and mine, being abandoned by everybody around him, he had the freedom, regardless of his circumstance, to express himself and to be honest with God, to ask questions like, where are you? Come and save me. Be near me. Why have you forsaken me? You have, the, you have that same freedom to be honest with God. Some of you, that shocks you. Some of you, you grew up in a, in a background where you, you, you were told and you were raised that you only need to tell God what he thinks he needs to hear or what you think he knows he needs to hear. Like, far be it for me to ever, to ever be in a situation and wonder, God, where are you in all of this? Are you even here? I feel like in the midst of this, of this problem in my life, I haven't seen a shred of evidence of, of you being here. Some of you are, 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 are afraid or did not know that you could pray those words. If Jesus had that kind of freedom, surely we do to, to, to lift up uh, our expression in a moment. We definitely can't stay there. But when it comes to you have the freedom to express yourself, I wanted to address two things. Number one, and this is more in line of, of ladies, it's okay to express yourself. Uh, men, if you're married in the room, I want you to look up at me. We have, 
uh, we, we have something that we're going to talk about here that may be a little bit heavy, and if you want to punch me in the face afterward, that's okay, but take it up with God's word, not me. Um, look up at me. If your wife ever comes to you and she says, I don't like the way that you're talking to this girl, or I don't like the way that you are hanging out with these friends over here and, and the things that they're, they're, they're talking to you about and things that you're bringing home, and you say, I don't want to hear that from you right now. That's too much. I can't handle that. That's just you and your insecurities. You need to learn how to deal with that. Shame on us if we ever stifle the expression of our wives. When God made man, he made man in the image and the likeness of God, and then when he formed and fashioned woman, he took her from Adam's side, not from the top of his head to be over him or from his feet to be beneath him, but from his side, so that there is unity and equality there. So far be it from us to ever shun the expression of our wives. If Jesus had the freedom to express himself and be honest with God, regardless of his circumstance, surely we all have the same freedom to express ourselves as well. And ladies, that goes for you as well. If your husband ever comes to you and says, honey, I, uh, I need this from you, or we're not spending enough time together in a I just need to be around you more. And, and, and your response is, well, that's too bad. Or you just need to deal with that. That's your insecurities. No, that should not be our response. We have the freedom. If Jesus had that freedom to express himself, surely all of us do. And not just horizontally, but like we said, we have the freedom vertically to be honest with God. And so we can't just stop there. Um, just like we can't just stop early on, as we said, that we have to experience what we're going through. I have to experience it and accept that I will be abandoned. We can't stop there. It brings us to expression. We cannot just stop at, at expression and understand that even though that regardless of my circumstance, it's okay for me to be honest with everybody and to be honest with God. But if we stay there for too long, we miss the key point of all of this. And we see what Jesus did on the cross, that he experienced it. He expressed himself. He takes it one step further and he exalts the Father. He exalts the Father. Look with me in, in, in the Psalm 22. We're going to be in the same Psalm, verse 22. Follow me through these verses and listen to the way that this language kind of connotates and is conducive to praise and to worship. Beginning in verse 22. In verse 22, it says, I will tell of your name to my brothers in the midst of the congregation. I will what? Say that word aloud. I will praise you. I will praise you. You who fear the Lord, praise him. All you offspring of Jacob, glorify him and stand in awe of him. Verse 25, from you comes my praise in the great congregation. 26, those who seek him shall praise the Lord. Verse 27, all the ends of the earth shall remember and turn to the Lord and all the families of the nation shall worship before you. Verse 29, all the prosperous of the earth eat and worship. Before him shall bow all who go down to the dust. In the final verse 31, they shall come and proclaim his righteousness to a people yet unborn, that he has done it. What are we seeing Jesus do in this, in this language and David using with this language? We're seeing them in the midst of their abandonment and in the midst of their pain, in the midst of our Lord's pain and betrayal and abandonment on the cross, that he spends better part of half of this psalm exalting, worshiping, and glorifying his Father in heaven our great God in heaven. I had a phone conversation with a friend this past week. Um, he was the pastor of the church that I grew up in and received Christ in when I was 15. And um, seven or eight years ago now, uh, I just called him to confirm this story and also ask if I could share it. And he gave me permission to, so here we go. Um, he was on a date with his wife uh, and her heart suddenly gave out in the passenger seat of the car 
he drove her to the hospital, and she tragically passed away that night. Um, just like that, out of nowhere. The very next morning, he drove home, and I asked him, how did you feel, man? Like, I could not imagine a greater feeling of abandonment or having been forsaken than, than to have lost a loved one, to, lost, to have lost the love of my life that I'm in a covenant relationship with for, out of nowhere, for no reason. And he said this. He said, this is how it made me feel. I was grateful that he had saturated my heart in his goodness. I had no fear of punishment, and I know that he is good and that he is trustworthy. I had no fear of punishment, and I know that he is good and that he is trustworthy. And then he went on to quote a pastor that he, he often quoted and, and knew uh, experiences from, that, that this pastor that he quoted had a father who died of cancer. And that next morning, that pastor was at the pulpit in front of his church, uh, in the altar on his knees, praying and singing and worshiping. And his friend came up to him and said, Pastor, what are you doing? And my friend quoted him saying this. He said, I'll never get an opportunity this side of eternity to get to worship my God when I do not understand. I will never get an opportunity this side of eternity to get to worship God when I do not understand. What's your response when you're abandoned? In the midst of abandonment, in the midst of being shattered and having your having your expectations or your hopes or, or a loved one uh, ripped from your hands or, or, or suddenly taken or your kids are gone and you haven't seen them in forever or your spouse has left you for somebody else. What's your response? Is your response just to experience it and just to express yourself and stop there? Just to be honest with God and constantly ask him, where are you? I don't see you in any of this. I've been struggling through this for years and I don't see a shred of your presence here. Do you stay there? Because it's healthy to be there, but it's not healthy to stay there. Or do you take it one step further? And that your response to abandonment is he is good. That God is glorified and he is awesome. That regardless of my situation, he is incredible. And he is God. What does that mean for us? If Jesus exalted the Father on the cross, what does that mean for us? He spent half of his time in his last moments reading that text and quoting that psalm. What does this mean for us? It means that my response to abandonment must be worship. My response to abandonment must be worship. Maybe some of you say this is too hard. You don't know what I've been through. You don't know what he said or what she did or how he left, what he did to me. This hurts me too much and how could I ever come in here and stand in these pews and raise my hands and declare that God is good when I'm in the midst of this mess? Some of you are thinking that, that it's too impossible and that, and that it's too difficult to come in and raise your hands and glorify God regardless of your circumstance. Look at Jesus. On the cross, in the midst of being abandoned, in the midst of being abandoned by, by all of his friends, by everyone that he knows, nailed to the cross in excruciating pain, taking on my punishment, your punishment. And in that, he takes time to say that God is good? He takes time to give God glory? Surely that can be our response. Surely that can be our response. When we worship God in the midst of our mess, 
our focus shifts from our grief to his glory. When we focus on giving glory to God and worship him in the midst of our mess, our focus shifts from our grief to his glory, that it's no longer, you don't know what he did, you don't know what she did, it is, I know what he did. He is good. He is good. Our response to abandonment must be worship. When we worship God in the midst of our mess, our focus shifts from our grief to his glory. The band is going to come up and lead us in a time of response this morning. Uh, But before we get there, I just wanted to um, answer something that some of you may be asking yourselves. The question of, was Jesus really abandoned? May I see him in the text in Matthew 27. Even if he didn't quote the entire psalm, we have his recorded words in Matthew 27 saying, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Was he really, was he really forsaken? Was he really abandoned? And how could that be so? I thought God is all loving and full of grace and full of mercy and full of compassion and love and truth and yes and amen to all of those things. Let me break this down for you for just a moment. Isaiah 55 has this to say about God and His holiness. He says, But your iniquities have made a separation between you and your God, and your sins have hidden His face from you. And Habakkuk 1 says, You who have purer eyes than any and cannot even look at evil. We see in these texts that God is holy and that God is righteous and that sin causes a separation between us and God. But praise God that it was not on us, that all of our sin in that moment when Jesus is on the cross and he's just he's being abandoned by everybody around him and the thieves beside him, all of his friends are gone, everyone has left him. The only innocent man to have ever lived and have ever will lived And in that moment, he takes all of the pain, all of the sin from everyone before him and everyone after him of you and me and everyone we've ever known on his shoulders. And because God is so holy and because he is so righteous, because his eyes are pure, he could not gaze and he had to turn his face away. That is why we sing songs like how great the pain of searing loss. The father turns his face away as wounds which mar the chosen one bring many sons to glory. That line of that song is very important. Bring bring many sons to glory. And in that moment of, of, of Jesus being abandoned and forsaken by the Father, we don't know how long it was. Maybe it was a moment, maybe it was hours. But in that, in that being abandoned, we were adopted. In that being forsaken, we are now forgiven you stand this morning. A big idea in understanding all of this, and don't miss this this morning, guys, don't miss this. Bringing many sons to glory is what God did through the cross and those wounds that marred the chosen one, Jesus. And bringing us to glory means that he brings us into his family. We are now again part of the family of God. The problem has not been us. The problem has been sin from the very beginning when Adam and Eve failed and turned and betrayed and abandoned God in the garden. And then humanity was infected with this sin. And all the way here in Psalm 22 and Matthew 27, we see Jesus addressing this abandonment and winning us back 
by his blood and by his flesh and taking on our sin on himself, we are brought back into his family. So the big idea this morning is that the abandonment of Jesus was the seal for my adoption. We are now adopted back into the family of God. John chapter 14 puts it this way in verse 15. It says, And I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper to be with you forever, even the spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him nor knows him. You know him, for he dwells with you and will be in you. I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. He also tells us that he will never leave us or forsake us. So if you're feeling abandoned this morning, if you're feeling left by a spouse or you have been left by a spouse or family member, number one, please understand that that abandonment is not God abandoning you in that situation. That all of the abandonment that should have happened for us happened on Jesus on the cross. No one ever felt abandonment greater than Jesus did when he was on the cross. So that is not from God. He does not abandon us because his word tells us he will never leave us or forsake us. There's a pastor who puts the adoption and the work of Jesus and what it took this way. He says, here's what we must remember and treasure. Jesus willingly suffers this so sinners may escape it. Jesus' abandonment means the sinner's adoption. He takes our place on the cross so we can take his place in the kingdom. And because he was abandoned, we may be children in the household of God. Because he was deserted, we become whole again, renewed in the image of God. Because he suffered separation, we may be spiritually united to him through faith so that we will never be separated from God's love, ever. Because he was forsaken, we are now forgiven. Now he says to us, I will never leave you or forsake you. And Romans 8 says, for all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. You did not receive a spirit of slavery, but you have received the spirit of adoption sons by whom we cry Abba Father the abandonment of Jesus was the seal for our adoption guys remember that this morning if you're in the midst of abandonment please before you respond come forward get on your knees ask the Father have I experienced this yet have I truly accepted the pain that it's done to me like Jesus do I understand I have the freedom to express myself God, you are good in the midst of all of this. Pray with me this morning. Heavenly Father, we come to you and we glorify you. We are thankful for your Son. We are thankful for your word to remind us that Jesus suffered.